Good morning, friends. Good to see you. Oh, that's pretty good. That was not, not too bad there. Glad you're here. Good morning to you. Hey, if we haven't met yet, my name is Zach Coffin. I'm the director of Next Gen uh, Ministries for the Westland Denomination, and I get to hang out here at Union Chapel quite a bit. And so glad that you are here with us. We're in the middle of the story, and I just want to give you permission, if you're not caught up on your reading, just skip ahead. Just just don't, don't, don't feel guilty. Just skip. Here's the thing. Let's have some honesty time. Some of you are like 10 chapters behind right now and you see the book. And here's the thing. I know how this goes. You see the book on your coffee table or your end table, or you see the book in your car and you're like, I should read that. And then you say to yourself, but I'm 10 chapters behind. So let this be your get out of jail free card, friends. Skip ahead. We're on 17 this week, which in my math means that 18 is just around the corner and you can start right in. And so we would love to have you join us in that. And um, hey, I'm going to give you a heads up today. You know, sometimes you hear messages and they're like super encouraging or inspiring. Today's super challenging. So you came on a great Sunday. Congratulations. So just want to warn you, today's going to be a lot of challenge and uh, um, we're going to look at Jeremiah specifically, the weeping prophet, and kind of where that goes. And so, so excited that you're here. So excited that we have the honor and privilege as a body to open up God's word and dive in together. So let's go ahead and do that. And so we're going to jump into today's story. We're in week 17. Um, we're looking at the time of the kings. So Greg did an incredible job last week of, of unpacking the northern kingdom, and, and you you Go back and watch last week's message if you didn't. Today we're going to start with this, this kid named Manasseh. And Manasseh's father uh, was, was Hezekiah. And Hezekiah as a king was unique because he put Yahweh, the God of Israel, as the priority for the country. He said there will be no other worship but to, God, to Yahweh. He took the temple and said, with the temple, you will not worship any other gods except Yahweh in the temple. So he really set, was calling Israel back to worship the one true God. But then he had a son. And so this is what we're going to follow today is this track of these kings in Israel. And we're going to ride this roller coaster of kings that followed God and didn't and followed God and didn't. And we're going to see this roller coaster of up and down all over and over again, and father not like son, as it said in the text, just over and over again, following God, not following God. And we're going to start with Manasseh. And so let's open up. Um, if you've got your Bibles, it'll be on the screens as well. Um, 2 Kings chapter 21, and here we go. Manasseh was 12 years old when he became king. Not encouraged by that. I'm just going to say, it's like 12-year-old king, just not, not feeling great about life right now. Not feeling good. But you know what? That was kind of normal back then. So it was a different time. So again, we have to think about these things in context. Context, that was a normal thing for them. But here we go. All right. 12-year-old became king. He reigned in Jerusalem for 55 years. His mother was Hephzibah. Uh, he did evil in the eyes of the Lord, following the detestable practices of the nations the Lord had driven out of Israel. So the Lord had driven all these things out, and Manasseh thinks it's a good idea to bring those things back in and begin to follow that. He rebuilt the high places his father Hezekiah had destroyed. He, he, he had torn, Hezekiah had torn down the, the, the other altars. He'd torn these things down, and Manasseh builds them back up. 
He also erected uh, altars to Baal and made Asher poles, as Ahab, king of Israel, had done before. He bowed down to all the starry hosts and worshipped them. Verse 4, he built altars in the temple of the Lord, exactly what his father had ripped out. Of which the Lord had said on these altars, in Jerusalem I will put my name. In the two courts of the temple of the Lord, he built altars to all the story hosts. And don't miss this. This is how messed up Manasseh is. It's so disgusting. He sacrificed his own son in the fire. Practiced divination, sought omens, consulted mediums and spiritualists. He did much evil in the eyes of the Lord, arousing God's anger. And so you're beginning to see Manasseh's not a good dude. It's kind of the understatement of the day. Manasseh's not following God. He's not calling Israel to follow God. He's actually replacing all the God Yahweh that his father had set up as the one true God. He's replacing all those altars, and he's, he's, so, he's so demonic. He's so um, um, twisted and nasty. He even sacrifices his own kid. So this is another turn where Israel as a nation is turning, turning their backs on God. Verse 7, he took the carved Asher pole and made it and put it in the temple of which the Lord had said to David and he had said to his son Solomon, in this temple and in Jerusalem, which I have chosen out of the tribes of Israel, I will put my name forever. I will not again make the feet of Israel wander from the land I have given their ancestors. Conditionally, if only they would be careful to do everything I commanded them and will keep the whole law that my servant Moses gave. God is continuing to instruct the Israelites, if you'll just follow me, if you'll just listen to me, if you'll just follow the laws that I've already given you, I'm not going to put you in exile anymore. I'm not going to have all these nations invade you. you. You won't live in captivity anymore. But Manasseh wants none of it. And it's interesting to me because Manasseh would have remembered how it was under his father. And we come to verse 9 and 10, two verses that scare the living daylights out of me. Because I think, I think if I'm really honest with these verses, I think it's easy for me to feel like I can... I, I, it, just, just let me read it. Just, you, you'll get there. Verse 9. The people did not listen. Manasseh led them astray. So they did more evil than the nations the Lord had destroyed before, Israel, before the Israelites. Verse 10, don't miss this, friends. The Lord spoke to Manasseh and his people, but they paid no attention. The Lord spoke to Manasseh and his people, the Israelites, but they paid no attention. So the Lord brought against them the army commanders of, this, of Assyria, who took Manasseh prisoner, put a hook in his nose, bound him in bronze shackles, and took him to Babylon. Why does this scare the living daylights out of me? Because God was clearly speaking and yet they paid no attention. If that doesn't shake you to your core, 
Because sometimes I think we can read these stories and, and, and think that, you know, maybe God wasn't speaking or maybe they missed it or whatever. And, and, and over and over again, we see God is speaking, but the people are choosing disobedience. They're choosing a different way. It wasn't that God wasn't speaking. It wasn't that God was distant. It wasn't that God wasn't near. God was all of those places. And yet, what's the text say? They did not pay attention. Help me, Jesus. Because I think if I'm really honest, it's easy for me to fall into that same rut. It's easy for me to get into the, to, to, to the run of life and to get into to, to raising my family or whatever those things are. It's easy to get distracted by all the things and just drift a little. I don't think Manasseh woke up one day after seeing how his father had lived and said, you know what? I've got a great idea. Let's flip the temple over. I think it was the slow drift of not paying attention. The Lord was speaking and he wasn't paying attention and he wasn't paying attention and he wasn't paying attention. What I've learned about following God's voice in my life is it's more, it's more, it's more about my posture and less about the volume for which he speaks. Let me say that again. What I've learned about hearing God's voice in my life, it's more about the posture of my heart, more about how, how much I want to hear from him and less about the volume of which he speaks. It's not a question of God speaking into my life. It's not a question of God speaking into your life. It's a question of what's the posture of our hearts towards him. Do we really want to hear from him? Do we really want to submit to him? Do we really think that he has something to say that could guide us? It's not a question of is he speaking or not speaking. It's do I want to hear from him? Am I, am I submitted to his voice? Is his the most important voice in my life? And so how do we know this? Like how do we know if we're really, we're, we're really wanting to do this? So, so I've, I, I, I thought about this with my life. Like what are some things that I've, I've heard me say to myself when I'm in seasons where I may not be like really kind of like wanting to really hear from God? I told you today I wasn't going to be fun. I told you it was going to be challenging. So I told you. I warned you, right? I warned you. We're all friends here. This is good. Okay, here's one of them. I don't need to pray about this. I can do it. Like when I'm in a season where, 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 where I might be choosing my own way, when, I'm, when, I'm in a, when I feel like I can do it on my own, when I feel like I, I may not need God's help necessarily on this, my posture towards prayer is a huge indicator of who's ruling my life. Is it my ego and my ambition and my skill set, or am I willing to submit to God and listen and posture myself to hear from Him? In, in, in the decisions of my day, do I even consider what the Lord might be wanting to do? Like I have a friend who he, he a very successful business businessman, and he'll be in his meetings, and there will be times where he'll just stop the meeting and he'll say, "Look." I just need to pray here for a second. I guess that's a bold move. That's a bold move. But it shows where, he's, where his heart is in the midst of that. The more I pray, the more I learn God's voice. Students will ask me, they'll say, hey, Zach, how do I, how do I, like, I don't know, I, like, I, I want to hear God's voice louder in my life. And the first thing I tell them is just start talking to him. Just start praying. The more you pray, the more you learn his voice. The more you seek his face, the more you discover who he is. 
And the more we pray, the more we learn to lay aside our selfish ambition and our vain conceit, and we learn the voice of God, and we learn that obedience to him is, is, is the best thing for our life. And not out of legalism, not out of, out of, out of just wanting to do the right thing for the right thing, thing because that, but because we are so, we're so hungry for him that we submit our hearts in love to him. Another thing, you know, another phrase that you might, you might say to yourself is, is this really that bad? Is it really that bad? Does anybody really care about that? It's not going to hurt anybody else. It just, it just, it's, you know, nobody else, it's just, it's just me, it's fine. One of my personal favorites, nobody's really going to know. Am I the only sick one here? Is this, is this, is this just me? You've never said anything like this? Okay, I just want to, I'll just preach to myself here for a minute, that's fine. And I, I had this, I had this realization a couple years ago, and it, it's, it's really, it's helped me keep my heart in tune with the Lord. And it's this, it's this, justification is the first step away from God. Like when I begin to justify my actions that I know are, are, are uh, in objection to the way that the Lord would want me to live, when I try to minimize those things, when I try to justify those things, that's my first step of me not walking with the Lord. Third thing is this. I know the Bible says, and you can fill in the blank, but we're really good about this right now in our culture. And by culture, I mean within the church. I'm not talking about out there. I'm talking about people in the church who actually believe the Bible to be true. Knowing the word of God. No, no, here we, I'll say it this way. Knowing the written word allows me to follow the living word. John chapter one. Like when I'm, when, when, when I'm in the living word, I hear God's voice more clearly. I hear him speaking and it allows me to follow him. Like we, we need to know the word of God so that we don't get lost in the midst of the darkness around us. It reminds me when I was a kid, my parents took us to Mammoth Cave. I don't know if you've ever been in a cave. Don't know if I would recommend it. It's quite the experience. I mean, it's cool, but you're underground. It's cold. It's wet. It's dark. I'm more of a beach person. I'm just going to say, like, I'm much more of like an outside, not closed in, lots of sunshine, maybe a fishing pole in my hand. That's a much better day for me. Um, but it reminds me, being in that cave reminded me of, of Psalms 19 when we're talking about engaging the scriptures. Because I remember when I was a kid and we went to Mammoth Cave. And, uh, you know, they've got all the lights on and all that kind of stuff. And then they turn the lights off. And it's so dark in that cave, you literally cannot see the hand in front of your face. Like you can stand there and you know your hand is there because you can feel the presence. And then your dad's a real nice guy and he pinches the back of your leg and makes you pee your pants. Thanks, dad. I didn't really pee my pants, but anyway. Um, and now you guys are like, did he though? Did he? Just a little, no. Um, (laughs) 
But then the, 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 the lady who's given the tour pulls out this one candle out of her pocket and lights that candle. And then all of a sudden you can see the glow of the faces around her. This is why we need the word of God, friends. This is why in Psalms 19, it says, your word is a lamp unto my feet and a light into our path. We can only know light from darkness when we've engaged the light. We can only go into dark places when we're walking with the light in hand. We can only preach and know the word of God if we're engaging with it. Knowing the word of God keeps my ears and my heart in tune with what the Lord is doing and what he has. And so here's Manasseh running rampant, running the kingdom, running it into the ground. He gets taken captive, but Manasseh's story doesn't stop there. And this is a good word for us because some of us hear that list and you're like, oh yeah, this is exactly what I do. Like I do all those things. Or in season in our life, we do all this justification stuff. But watch what, watch what Manasseh does. In, in his distress, in Manasseh's distress, in the midst of all of his disobedience, in the midst of literally turning an entire kingdom against God, Manasseh, in his distress, sought the favor of the Lord, uh, in his, his God, humbled himself greatly before the God of his father, and he prayed to him, and the Lord was moved by his humility and listened to his plea and brought him back to Jerusalem to his kingdom. Then Manasseh knew that the Lord was God. How many of you know that when you've walked in darkness and you have an encounter with Jesus, you know real quick who God is? This is Manasseh's posture. This is the posture for which we have to walk. And so I don't know where you're at today. I don't know if you're like, man, me and the Lord are good. If you feel like you're in a bit of wandering, follow Manasseh's lead. He humbled himself before God. He returned to God. He sought the grace and favor of God. And we've seen this all through the story over and over again. God's people running away from God. God running after his people. The, God, the, the people running away from God and God's running after his people. And as soon as they turn, God is right there to meet them with grace, love, and acceptance to bring them back in. That's a good word, friends. That's a good word for us this morning. That's a word that we need reminded of today, that he will never leave us nor forsake us, that there's never, you're never too far of running away from him. That's good. So then we get into the list of these kings and we see this up and down we see Amon, the son of Manasseh. Amon was 22 years old. This is Second Chronicles chapter 33. Amon was 22 years old when he became king. He reigned in Jerusalem for two years. He did evil in the eyes of God. So although Manasseh had did evil and then turned to God, his son Amon uh, didn't follow God. Amon worshiped and offered sacrifices to the idols Manasseh had made. But unlike his father Manasseh, he did not humble himself before the Lord. Amon increased his guilt. And then we get into this other list of kings. Josiah, son of Amon, he was only eight years old. That went well. So the 12-year-old didn't go so well. The eight-year-old did go well. Josiah goes in, remembers what his, his grandfather had done of following God, clears the temple out. And when they clear the temple out, they find the books of law. They find, they find the books of Moses. And he brings sweeping reform and spiritual renewal to the kingdom. 
that Yahweh is the one true God. And he, he repairs the temple and puts up, cleans it all up. Then Jehoaz, the son of Josiah, he had a three-month reign. Didn't go so well. That's a quick one. Jehoiakim, um, he, he had this, uh, he, he turned from God. That pattern of turning from God continues. Jehoiakim uh, was, just a pa- was just a puppet for Babylon. So he just did whatever Babylon said. He didn't, he didn't really follow God. He just did whatever, whatever, he, whatever Babylon said. And he was invaded by like four different kingdoms. Didn't go well. So once again, it's just a hot mess. Jehoiakim, son of Jehoiakim, he, um, he was in, only in office for three months. He was so bad. This is when you know you're bad. When you're at war with an invading country and the opposing king is so baller and isn't scared of you that he walks into your city in the middle of the battle, you know you're in trouble. And that's what Nebuchadnezzar does. Nebuchadnezzar's like, eh, not really worried about y'all. And, and, and instead of like fighting this battle, Nebuchadnezzar just walks in like straight, straight beast mode. I mean, like, I'm sure he's got like a big white horse maybe some like trumpets and stuff behind him, you know, like some theme music, like whatever. I mean, I imagine, the, I don't know if the kings had theme music. I bet they did because it'd be super cool if you're the king to have a theme song. So like his theme song was pumping and then everybody just knows Nebuchadnezzar's in the house and he just takes over the kingdom. And what's so terrifying about what Nebuchadnezzar does then is he strips Jerusalem of its culture. He takes all the armies, He takes all the fighting men. He takes all the officers. He takes all the skilled workers who knew how to run the city and all the infrastructure. He took all the artisans, so he took their culture. He guts the city and leaves just desolation behind where Jerusalem is a mess with no infrastructure, no army, and no arts. That's barely a society. But in the midst of that, In the midst of all of this disobedience, God begins to raise up these prophets to speak to Israel, to speak to his people. That the prophet's primary objective wasn't the other kingdoms. The prophet's primary objective, listen to me, the prophet's primary objective was to speak to God's people. And so Jeremiah's on the scene. And Jeremiah... He, he's, he's around for all of these kings. He's around for Josiah, Jehoaz, and Jehoiakim, and Jehoiakim, and uh, Zedekiah. He's, he's in the mix for all that. And J- Jeremiah was called at a really, really young age. Like when I, read, when I, when I first read the story of, of, of Jeremiah, like when I heard that he was a prophet of God, like I'm just going to be honest with you, I thought to myself, mm, you know, maybe mid-40s with a beard, a, you know, like God is like I, you know, I just thought like that would be the that would be who would God would use. You know, like that was kind of one of those stereotypes. But when God calls Jeremiah, scholars believe that he was seventeen years old. So God is using, begins to call this seventeen-year-old to be his mouthpiece. And I want you to watch what God says to seventeen-year-old Jeremiah the first time. When God calls him, here's what he says to him. The word of the Lord came to Jeremiah saying, before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. Before you were born, I set you apart. I appointed you as a prophet to the nations. 
God knew that if Jeremiah was truly going to be his mouthpiece, Jeremiah had to have full confidence in who he was. He, God immediately begins to speak a kingdom identity into Jeremiah. He doesn't begin to speak, this is what you're going to say to the people. He doesn't, he doesn't give him all, these, you know, all this gifts and stuff. He says, Jeremiah, this is who I say that you are. This is what he says to the 17-year-old. Friends, we need to be speaking kingdom identity into our young people like never before. If Jeremiah, the prophet of God, needs to fully understand his identity in Christ, his identity in God, how much more does this generation need? Because here, let me, let me, let me, like, let me tell you how it was for me growing up, right? So I'm a millennial. Some of you just threw up in your mouth, okay? And here's why. I'm all, uh, buckle up, buttercup. I'm going to speak some truth. Because all I've heard for my entire life about millennials, if I'm really honest, are you, I, you, can't, you came this morning for this, all right? Like you walked through that door on your own. But all I've heard about millennials for 20 years is that they're lazy, entitled, living in their mom's basement, never going to amount to anything, just want a free ride. And the hard part about stereotypes is that at some level, there's some truth to them. That's the only reason that stereotypes work, if there's a little bit of truth to them. But I've also often wondered, for my generation, what if something else had been spoken over us? What if something else had been spoken over, like what if the truth of God had been spoken over this generation? Because I think, friends, that's where we are with Gen Z. We've got to do better. Look, I know that younger generations got their stuff, and can I be really honest? You did too. Like we talk about generations sometimes, like they've ne- like oh we've never had our our generations never had our issues. Yeah, nothing ever happened in the sixties. <laughs> the seventies were really easy. And and I know I'm being, I know I'm joking about it, but, but but I want you to hear my heart in this. If Gen Z is truly going to become who God ultimately demands that they be. What if the older generations begin to speak life over them and just call them to a higher purpose? That in the same way that God spoke, spoke life and identity to 17-year-old Jeremiah, what if millennials and Xers and boomers and bridgers and all these other labels that we put on each other, we laid, a, we laid aside all these cultural generalities and cultural labels that we put over, and we made a list of like who God says this generation is. And we begin to pray and prophesy and demand that Gen Z rise up like no generation ever has before. And so I put together like five verses for us. I want us to consider. Like what if we begin to pray these five verses over over this generation? What if we begin to pray Proverbs chapter three? Do not be wise in your own eyes. Fear the Lord and shun evil. This will bring health to your body and nourishment for your bones. What if Gen Z became so enamored with God that they feared him so deeply that they didn't compromise with sin? 
Not because somebody made a list, not because a mom and dad made a rule, but because they were so scared of a holy God. Like Isaiah chapter 6, that, that I see the Lord seated on his throne and the train of the robe fills the temple. And I can't help but fall on my face before him. Because I'm so enamored with who he is. I'm so scared of who he is. This holy, righteous fear. That I don't just avoid evil. I don't just like step around it. But that Gen Z is so, so enamored with the face of Jesus. That there's, that there's nothing that they would touch that, that would defile that. Because they fear the Lord. Like what about Romans chapter 12? Do not conform any longer to the patterns of this world. But be transformed by your mind. Be renewed in your mind. Then you will be able to test and approve what God's will is. Like with all the mental health stuff going around, what if we begin to pray and prophesy Romans chapter 12 over them? Do not conform any pattern to this world, but be, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, that you'd be renewed in your mind by the work of the Holy Spirit. Like what would God do with this generation? Or Ephesians chapter six, finally be strong in the Lord and in his mighty power, put on the full armor of God so that you can stand up against the devil's evil schemes. That, that as Gen Z begins to stand up, that they put on the full armor of God, not just a catchy slogan, not just a, but they put on the, the belt of truth and the helmet of salvation, the sword of the spirit, the shield of faith. Like we can pray these things and demand these things of them. Not just this cultural nonsense of all these generalities, but really begging God to move in this generation like we've never seen before. Because I'm just crazy enough to believe that God knew that Gen Z was gonna be born in this time. I'm crazy enough to believe that God knew that my daughter, Annalie, was born in this generation, for this generation, to call this generation back to him right now. Oh, I'm gonna wait on you till you get it. Like we've got to move. We, we, we've got to realize that it, 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 it's not, a, it's, 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 it, it, it may be dark out there, but God is raising up a generation and we can call and contend and prophesy and pray the, the, the written word of God on behalf of this generation so that they can encounter the living word. Philippians chapter two, do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit, but humility consider others better than yourselves. Not just, not just jumping on social causes for social causes sake, but jumping on, jumping on doing nothing out of selfish ambition and vain conceit because they understand what kingdom justice is. They understand what God's wanting to do in the earth. Acts one, you'll have power when the Holy Spirit comes on you. Be my witnesses. That, this, that, that what if Gen Z is actually the most, the most evangelistic, missions-driven generation that the world has ever seen? That they're, that they're, that they're going to go wherever the Lord tells them to go and be sent like never before. Like, friends, that's on us. Like, that's the opportunity that we have. Like, why is serve so important? This is why. Because we have the incredible privilege and honor to raise and send out this generation. Not when they're 20, not when they're 30, but when they're 7, 8, 9, 10, 5, 15, 19. Jeremiah thinks he's too young. God says, you're not too young, buddy. I'm gonna go with you. 
And God knew that he had to instill identity into Jeremiah. And despite Jeremiah having this, you know, despite Jeremiah having this call on God's life, you know, got this call on his life from God, Jeremiah had a rough life. It wasn't all daisies and gumdrops for him. He was plotted to be killed by his family. He was whipped. He was put in the stocks. He was ridiculed, made fun of, arrested, accused of treason, thrown in a deep well. Not to mention all of the wave of kings that he had to follow and all this kind of stuff. And his call was to proclaim the truth. For 40 years, he stays faithful pro- proclaiming the truth of God. Despite all of the challenges. And what's really interesting to me, don't miss this. What's interesting to me about Jeremiah is that Jeremiah is known as the weeping prophet. He's known as the weeping prophet. Which begs the question, why, Zach? Why is he the weeping prophet? Thanks for asking. It would be easy to look at Jeremiah's life and say he's the weeping prophet because of all the struggle that he encountered. Let me read that list to you again. Plotted to be killed by his own family, whipped, put in, put in stocks, ridiculed and mocked, arrested, accused of treason, which is a death penalty, uh, thrown in a deep well. All of the up and down of the kings, and he spent most of his time alone. But friends, Jeremiah, listen to me, don't miss this. Jeremiah is not known, listen to me, as the weeping prophet because of the things that happened in his life. Jeremiah is known as the weeping prophet because he ached over what he saw in God's people. Because he looked out across Israel and Jerusalem and he saw the uh, unfaithfulness to Yahweh and it broke him. It broke him. We have had a lot the last week or so to just grieve over the shooting in Buffalo. And yes, not all mass shootings are racially driven. That one clearly was, and it was devastating. Come Lord Jesus, help us. The horrible shooting in Texas, killing all those kids. Lord Jesus, help us. And then there's a report that comes out about the Southern, in the Southern Baptist Church, a 205-page document, hidden database of 700 sexual abusers that was just hidden. Sins that happened in the church and then were hidden by the church. I hope we have not become so numb that that doesn't make us want to puke and weep. And beg God for mercy. Jeremiah teaches us, friends, that, that we, not, we, not, we don't only just need to ache over what's going on out there. But again, Jeremiah ached with the sin and the brokenness inside God's people. When was the last time that you just ached over the brokenness within the body? 
and not just in the body, friends, the brokenness inside of you. Because I think we, I think we, I think we, 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 we say things like this in the church sometimes and hang in there, okay? Hang in there. Don't, don't check out yet. Hang with me. Hang with me. Because we read, we, 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 we pray things, we pray things, uh, you know, sometimes we pray things and, and we pray it like it's out there, like the, like the stuff is out there. And we'll pray things like this, you know, where it says, you know, if my people will call on my name and humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then I will hear from heaven and forgive them and heal our land. And we pray those things like over a country, which, hear, hear, hear my heart. We should pray those things over our country. We should pray those things over our country. We should pray those things over the world. But we have to be good uh, uh, theologians in this, good contextual people, and realize that that prayer was prayed at the dedication of the temple over God's people first. That wasn't prayed for all the pagans. Do you hear me? That prayer of if my people who call on my name will humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their ways, I will hear from heaven and I will forgive them and heal their land. That prayer was for God's people. When was the last time we, we, have, we have plenty to ache over out there. But when was the last time we got down on our faces before God and ached over the darkness in us? Ached over the brokenness in the bride. Ached over the brokenness in the church and in our relationships. When was the last time that I ached over the sin in me? Because God has a promise in this. That his eyes will be open and his ears attended, attentive to the prayers offered in this place. This place of repentance. This place of brokenness. Jeremiah reminds us today that the struggle, although out there, first starts right here. If we want to see healing in our country and the world, it must first start with brokenness and repentance in the church, inside of us. Band, if you guys want to come on up. I told you today was going to be a challenge. Because it's hard to know sometimes what to do with the, with the prophetic message like that from Jeremiah. But I think David gives us great instruction when he prays, Lord, create in me a clean heart. Cast me not from your presence. God, create in me a clean heart. Cast me not from your presence. God, create in me a clean heart. Cast me not from your presence. Like what would happen if the next time we start to feel this, this, 
this us versus them tension or whatever. We first said, God, whatever brokenness is in me, Jesus, you're, you're, you're a holy God. You're, you're righteous. You're such a good God. Like, would you, would you first start with me, God? Would you start with your bride? Would you purify your bride? Like Jesus, Scripture says that, that you'll return for a pure and spotless bride, like the bride of Christ. Like, you'll return for a purified bride, God. Would you start to do that here with us, God? Would you do that in me? Would you do that in Union Chapel? Would you do that in Muncie first in our church, God? Would you just, would you, would you purify us first, God? So here's how I want to f- close today. And I know it's heavy, and I know it's, you know, y'all were wanting to go eat your wings and barbecue, and it's like, well, he's a real downer. But I actually think the call of repentance is the most upward thing we can do. Because we don't only serve a good God, we serve a righteous God who demands holiness from us. So here's what I want to do. I just want to, I'm, I'm, the band's going to come and I'm going to just pray over us. And I want to give you space to just even pray that prayer. Lord, if there's any, if there's anything in me that, that you need to root out, would you root it out? This, this prayer of, of Psalms 51, create in me a clean heart, oh God. And so would you just bow your heads with me? And I'm just going to be quiet here for a minute and allow you some space. You just pray to God. So there's areas in your life that you need to repent of today. That you just need to say to God, God, create in me a clean heart. Renew a right spirit within me. Cast me not from your presence, O God. Jesus, you are so holy, you are good, you are righteous, God. And we just say together, we are sorry for the ways that we have chosen everything but you. That God, the places where we've heard your voice and we've ignored it. The places where we know that you've called us to more and we've chosen the less. And Father, frankly, in the places where we've, we've put idols in sin in the place of your altar where you should be set. God, I confess that in my own life, Jesus. I'm so sorry, Jesus. Forgive me, Father. God, would you purify your bride freshly, God? I don't, I don't know how you do it. I, I, don't, I, don't, I don't understand how it all works, God, but I just know that my heart burns for you and burns to see a body just so dedicated to holiness before you, God. Not just a cultural Christianity and this other stuff that just gets us through the motions, God, but God, a, a life humbly face down before you, Jesus. Help us, Jesus, help us. Amen.